This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 699. This week, we welcome Dr. J. Thomas Pierce. Talk about his fascinating background and how we can better connect with people about occupational and environmental health and safety. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. And don't forget about after the show, afterthoughts.iaqradio.com to continue the discussion sponsored by First On Site Property Restoration. IAQ Radio Plus Marquee Sponsor is First On Site Property Restoration at firstonsite.com. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA at restorationindustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA at eia-usa.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are AEML Laboratories at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus at particlesplus.com. TSI Inc. at tsi.com. Tramex Meters at tramexmeters.com and Healthy Indoors Magazine at healthyindoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. All right, the Z-Man's off today, so I'm going to take this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question for May 5th, 2023, sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn, learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Today's question is, what state had three of the top five largest lead mines in the United States in 2021? All right, so today's guest is... John Thomas Pierce, Dr. Pierce, was born and raised in southeast Kansas, a researcher and physician. He has practiced public health on four continents. He continues to be active in the occupational and environmental health and safety world, writing articles, reviewing technical journals, and most recently as an author. Dr. Pierce has been working in the occupational safety and health arena for half a century, and his unique background in medicine, laboratories, and the field gives him a rare perspective. Welcome, Dr. Pierce. Great to see you. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. I, we've, I've enjoyed getting ready for this show and, and talking to you and reading a couple of your books here and uh, looking forward to a great interview. Before we get started, um, you, you started out in your bio, it says in Southeast Kansas. You're from Southeast Kansas. What led a young guy from Southeast Kansas into the world of occupational environmental health and safety? Well, sort of in order, I found uh, I found chemistry, and uh, when I found uh, chemistry, uh, 
early on, some of my profs were foolish enough when I was a senior chemistry student to, they wanted to go home in the afternoon, they let me run the labs. So I had to do the stockroom preps, had to supervise the students, the younger students, and uh, started to wonder about some of the things that we work with. And that sort of got me intrigued. Interesting. And then where, where did you go from there? Off to college? I did. I was in college and uh, a lot of my uh, training was in Southeast Kansas. We have our own, uh, not University of Pittsburgh, but our own Pittsburgh State. A lot of the names of the towns in Southeast Kansas are derivative, actually, of Pennsylvania. We have Alton and Pittsburgh, Girard and places like that. And then uh, I continued on at that uh, stage of life. I went down to the University of Oklahoma. Um, at, at that time, I went through the graduate program. I, I was not a medical student at that time, but I, I went down to Oklahoma and continued. They had a, or, or have a school of public health. Yeah, the schools of public health have changed over the years. Huh? I mean, the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health used to be a big, you know, leader in the in the world. It kind of slowed down. How about in Oklahoma? Has that stayed pretty consistent over the years? Oklahoma has somewhat of a unique uh, background because of uh, Native Americans. A lot of states don't have uh, the sway that Oklahoma has in terms of Native American populations. So when, when you look at public health or uh, medicine in Oklahoma, that, that that's very helpful in terms of uh, funding. So I, I think they uh, do okay. You know, we, we all undergo these uh, transitions and the definition of public health has actually changed considerably within the last 10 to 15 years. So, so some of the fields that in the past were a bit uh, limited, like global health, for instance, that's a lot bigger. Uh, frankly, environmental health and the subspecialties within that has struggled a bit. Uh, population health uh, is on the rise. Big data, that's on the rise. So these these fields uh, fluctuate, um, and, and quite frankly, schools of public health aren't any different than any other entity. They rebrand themselves in terms of uh, their output because they all have to go to the legislature or to the funding agencies as well and say, this is what we have to offer. We're going to talk more about the funding of, of some of this research later in the interview. Before we do that, let's talk a little bit about some of the most important people in your mind in the mid 20th century in the OEHS arena? Across that uh, mid uh, 20th century uh, period, virtually anybody that's worked in this field will pull up the name uh, Dr. Alice uh, Hamilton. And Alice Hamilton becomes important mid 20th century for a variety of uh, reasons. Uh, uh, and there's another uh, connection, really fascinating. Alice Hamilton's sister is Edith Hamilton. And every high school kid that was exposed to uh, classics of the gods and heroes, that's actually Alice Hamilton's sister that wrote that, which ends up being used in virtually every high school uh, in the United States. So here's a picture. This is a uh, Alice Hamilton, uh, obviously, she, she's a rather small individual. A lot of times people are surprised when they first see a picture. The man on the left is a physician. He most of the time refers to himself as an industrial hygienist first, a physician second. His name is Kerry Pratt McCord. And the two gentlemen on the right, Stewart and Meek, are both 
presidents. Uh, the, uh, people can look this up on the AIHA uh, website. Th- these are presidents of the American Industrial Hygiene Association of late 1940s. In terms of that period, this is a very key period in that the United States has fortunately prevailed in World War II. It has grown a large synthetic organic chemical industry, but there are a variety of nagging problems out of that era, people's exposures and so on. So these these four individuals here and some others certainly I could mention as well out of that era become very important in growing professions, in advancing science, and also uh, publishing things. Uh, By most accounts, Alice Hamilton and her sister, Edith Hamilton, spend weekends in Connecticut that they are both serious scholars. So uh, Alice Hamilton's putting together all of these things on the dangerous trades, and her sister is busy as a, a true scholar, academician, in terms of mythology writing and so on. So I've always found that sort of interesting. What what kind of excites you about the OEHS arena? What gets you going uh, and keeps you going for all these years working in this arena? I'm very passionate about it. I uh, am uh, admittedly uh, in love with it. I've always loved it. And I will until my last day. I think it is the penultimate field for people that like science, have an interest in technology, and also care about people. I, I find few other disciplines that really attract people and focus people and keep people driving ahead uh, with this. Uh, and, you know, I interview a lot of students. I interview medical residents. I interview a variety of people that are trying to do all kinds of things. And if I find they share that passion, I give them good marks. And if it sounds like something they need to do to uh, for some other reason, then uh, maybe not. You know, you on our, when we're getting ready for the show, I wanted to put your, your name up and your title, and I didn't know whether it was MD, and, and then I, I realized that I wanted to put on there the uh, the MBBS, and I had to look it up, to be honest with you. I wasn't sure what that is. Can you tell listeners a little more about what an MBBS is? Well, m- most of the time in the United States, the graduate degrees are, are those of MD, medical doctor, and and, and and DO, which is Doctor of Osteopathy, which is, uh, you know, a, a, a slight uh, variation and it includes uh, principles of osteopathic uh, manipulation, very holistic approach. Abroad, many physicians abroad have um, this two-sided degree. And even though it looks like MB and then a BS, like Bachelor of Science, the first part of it, the MB is the medical component. And the last part of it, if you reverse it and go to the end letter, the S is a surgical component. So anyone that's ever seen the caduceus, which is a two-headed snake, you used to see that a lot on doctor's offices and so on. That's the wedding, so to speak, of the medical component. In other words, therapeutics as opposed to uh, therapeutic uh, solutions. And the other thing that we have a bit wrong these days, most of the time when we see a snake, we, we think of a viper or poison or something like that. To go back to Edith Hamilton and mythology, the serpent is originally 
uh, symbol of wisdom. And so the two heads of the MBBS, and that's uh, the best I can do. If You'll see this a lot with uh, doctors from Pakistan, Australia, Indian subcontinent. Uh, with the Brits, what you typically typically see is MBCHB. Some people think that's uh, chiropractic. Uh, chiro is actually a, a synonym for surgery. So that's probably more than you ever wanted to know about this. But that's the explanation of what that's all about. No, that's very interesting. I, I didn't know that. And I like the, the the serpents. I always wondered what that was about, too. Now I understand a little better. What about you have a Ph.D. as well? Or I, I didn't asked this before but uh we had that it's on your business card that's true i did phd it's in public health uh you know my dissertation has a very straightforward title 1978 is industrial hygiene aspects of the college chemistry laboratory and not only with the dissertation but with three publications that ensued uh from it there were uh three methods um one for lead, uh, one uh, for uh, mercury, and one for antimony that were basically advanced to spot tests. I know people think spot tests are in the past and not necessarily the ones that I've developed, but the ones that I developed and more so those of others are still used uh, to this day to rule in, rule out, for another group, uh, we're about to have our uh, Missouri Safety and Health uh, Conference. I'm going to do an update on occupational dermatitis. So a lot, of the, a lot of that allergic contact dermatitis arises from nickel. And we actually have a spot test that we can use to test materials. It's just a dropper kind of thing. And and it's uh, quick and dirty, obviously. But uh, those spot tests have not entirely gone away need to follow up if you do that with something more sophisticated. But a lot of times when you could do things for $5, that's the place to start as opposed to something that costs $5,000 to start. Interesting. Now, I don't know how much we got a chance to talk about, but you you, you were pretty, uh, pretty obvious that you had great respect for um, Dr. I, I have to get the name again, uh, McCord. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about him and why he impressed you so much. Harry McCord's family is from Southern Appalachia. And the title of the book, this business about blind hogs, acorn, is a reference. You, you'll hear that not only with respect to him, but other people that uh, even a visually impaired hog every once in a while finds an acorn. And so McCord's parents, when he's a boy, taking to a phrenologist. A phrenologist is a qu- an absolute quack. A phrenologist uh, takes his or her hands and they feel uh, the bumps on a kid's head, and they tell the parents uh, what they think is going to happen. The child's going to do well or a little slow or whatever it happens to be. And according to McCord's storytelling, the phrenologist, a total quack, feels along his skull. And to give his parents some degree of hope says, well, even a blind hog meeting this kid isn't very smart is going to find something to do. And so uh, McCord carries that with him his entire life. And and this and a series of other Southern Appalachian stories, uh, he's a brilliant guy. He, he had done research in uh, uh, reproductive toxicology or physiology before he even went through his medical training and so on. Uh, 
McCord takes on a charge of being a storyteller. And so not only this book, but others, what he's attempting to do is to make a case for ACGIH, to make a case for AIHA, to make a case for doing these investigations. Uh, there's a, if, if you go back, I have a couple of family members that had something to do with related uh, professions out of that era. A lot of times, if a worker or an interested citizen started to ask some questions, there would be retaliation in terms of asking those uh, questions and so on. So McCord basically uh, stirs up a lot of interest in this field. And so that's one of several reasons why I became somewhat of a devotee. And now you've kind of following in his footsteps, writing your own books and, and using people's stories to help. Well, I don't know how to write quite like Kerry McCord did, but uh, you're right. There's an attempt on my part uh, to, to, to do that. And also, I want to say it's not just these stories that I put together. But the concept, and this is what I'm most passionate about at this point, the process of narrative storytelling, whether it's by virtue of podcasts, uh, written materials, uh, audiobooks, all manner of venues. I, I don't think it's just the stories that I've chosen. I have two major themes, two major stories that I use to sort of explain this profession. One involves an abandoned wooden racetrack in Kansas City, and the other involves the life experience of a World War II WASP pilot, a female pilot that was accepted in a training program uh, who is from uh, northwest Alabama. And I follow people throughout the course of their lives, and I bump them into. I bump them into people in the OEHS and related uh, professions. So. That's where I'm going. We're going to get back into your books in a moment. Before we do, I want to ask, how long have you been writing the action level column in the Journal for Occupational Environmental Health? And what is the purpose of that column? I am so happy to say this is the 40th anniversary. Well, 2024 will be the 40th uh, anniversary. So, you wow. know, when you get a little age on you, you're always counting. You're always counting that next because, you know, you, you don't know how things are going to go exactly. But <laughs> 2024 will be the 40th anniversary. So the background of that and the purpose of that, in the 1980s, three or four of us came together for just general discussions. Uh, to, to a great extent, we were individuals who either led or taught in industrial hygiene and environmental health type training programs around the country. And I digress a little bit, one is Jeff Lee, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, deceased uh, out in Utah, kind of a visionary guy in industrial hygiene. Another one is Steve Levine uh, from uh, Michigan. Uh, Vern Rose at that time was like me, was from Alabama. So we got together and said, what do we need to do to sort of get to the next stage? Well, one of the things that I knew about I knew that the veterinary toxicologist, which is kind of a, a niche group, I suppose, but I knew that they had a monthly column. And it was a typical kind of thing where they asked a series of questions. And then in the following month's issue of veterinary and human toxicology, they would provide uh, the answers. And I thought, we really need something like that. Uh, circa the creation of the action level, nearly all continuing education 
in terms of that era, um, amounts to uh, butts and chairs in a conference room somewhere. There wasn't a lot going on in terms of uh, this type of extended campus or continuing kind of things. And it continues to this day? Yes, it does. We do it. Uh, the, the original, there are a succession of journals. They have a variety of names. All of the journals that have uh, ever been attributed to the two organizations always have the name hygiene in them. But at times, it's just applied uh, something hygiene. And then we uh, embrace the environmental side. We don't want to be just occupational. We want to be occupational and environmental. And at various periods of time, we needed the word American in the title for the journal. And then over a period of time, we sort of condensed. And so what we have today is just the Journal of Occupational Environmental Hygiene. Hygiene. I messed that up. All right. Hey, let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess this is your third book, but the, the first one that was kind of like for the masses, Hospital Safari. Um, tell our audience a little bit about what the book Hospital Safari was about. I was in Africa on and off for three or four years. I was going through some of my own medical training and so on. And during that period of time, I never went on a safari. Uh, the period where I go to Africa, it's uh, during the era of uh, President George Bush, for, the 43, and uh, basically in sub-Saharan uh, Africa in terms of HIV positivity, HIV positivity among adults is 40 plus percent. And if you go to wow. specific age ranges, it's a lot higher than that. And we have a lot of sick people. So these are just straight on. And I'm not an infectious disease specialist by any means, but this is just straight on ward hospital care in terms of affected, generally very ill uh, individuals. It's actually somewhat later that the antiretrovirals, uh, both in, there are two phases to this. One is they needed to improve. By the time uh, we get to 2005, worldwide, the antiretrovirals are much, much uh, better than what they are originally. And the second feature is the Ministry of Health in the three countries where I was, Botswana, uh, Republic of South uh, Africa, and Zimbabwe, their ministries of health have to approve the use of those drugs. This is not the, the model in the United States. The FDA approves drugs, but the FDA isn't responsible for the funding. In the countries that I'm talking about, their ministry of health does both. They provide an approval and they also provide the drug. And they, they were generally unwilling to provide the drugs. Hmm. So we had a lot of TB too and others. You know, that had to be a fascinating experience. I mean, uh, how did it change you to go over there and, and work for, you know, years in, in um, sub-Saharan Africa? Um, it was a lot more. I, I know it sounds terrible to say with these people dying and all this sort of thing, but in many respects, it, it was another day at the office. And uh, in the sense that you're sharing your life uh with them and they're doing the best they can and you're doing the best that you can uh, under the uh, circumstances. And uh, it may be as well that I was uh, both young enough and inexperienced enough uh, that it didn't affect me a whole lot. I, I don't remember becoming uh, remorseful or despondent 
uh, over it or anything of that nature. It, it was rather engaging, uh, in fact. Interesting. Interesting. I got a lot of interest in HIV drugs out of it, I can tell you that. Uh, do you still hear from people from time to time? I do. Uh, that's one of the things in my life that I'm actually proudest of and that uh, some of it's just social media stuff, but I maintain contact all the way back to the people that I knew in high school and later on, uh, whether it's the military or different places I worked and so on. Uh, and I, I do hear uh, from people. I'm very, I'm very appreciative of that. I've, I think people talk about the career trajectory. I'm as interested in terms of the trajectory of acquaintance and friendship. I think that's the trajectory of friendship is a fascinating topic. Now let's let's go over a little bit to um, Million Dollar Speedway. I got my copy right here, the Million Dollar Speedway, and um, let's start with why you wrote it and. Then we can talk a little bit more about the uh, some of the maybe the characters and the more importantly, I guess the the issues that you're dealing with in here. The primary issue of Billion Dollar Speedway is kind of a curious thing in Kansas City. Kansas City, like some other places, created an enormous board track about 1921. It only persisted for about two years, and there are economic failings and some structural problems and flooding and a variety of things of that nature, but I use the track itself as a medium to explain uh, source, point source contamination and dissemination of contamination uh, from a, a single location. So the track itself is very storied in terms of Kansas City uh, history. Uh, uh, it, it is sort of continuously brought up. People will read the stories about it, whether I wrote them or, or, uh, a very good local historian named uh, Mrs. Uh, Houston and others. But this story about the enormity of the track and the excitement of board track uh, racing. So that becomes a vehicle for me because I want to sort of explain where do the boards from the track end up and what usages uh, do they have? So in terms of my yard, I use the idea that there's an enormous lumber yard of basically free lumber. And so these boards end up being used as at a variety of locations around town. I try to underpin my stories with uh, some basics in terms of geology, some basics in terms of rivers, basics in terms of architectural styles and people's preferences, and also some of their cultural and ancestral backgrounds. Where did they come from? I use Belgian Americans a lot in the Million Dollar Speedway. I use Native Americans. I use Belgian Americans, Mexican Americans, African Americans. Where did these people come from? And how did they come together in my town out here? And so that's a lot of the background to that. And then from that point on, we get started with a series of yarns that involve somebody working with herbicides on the railroad, other individuals who are faced with some residential lead poisoning kinds of issues, and how they go about trying to resolve any of that. And what was the was the wood treated wood or let, let's give a little more detail for our listeners. The detail in terms of the wood is uh, the wood from any one of these tracks ends up being heavily contaminated. Uh, the motors that are used, whether they're the uh, automobile racers or the motorcycles, they both uh, had races on these tracks. 
these are pretty much consumptive oil systems. This is not a very efficient oil recirculating system. So not only the uh, crankcase oil, but the fuels themselves are heavily leaded. And tetraethyl lead, which is a very toxic compound, it's introduced. It really changes the characteristics of internal combustion engines about 1921-1922. And at the time, the knowledge of the toxicology of it is very limited. It's seen as it's going to be a great solution. It allows cars and motorcycles to go a lot faster. Uh, they warm up quicker. Uh, they are less likely to have mechanical problems. It's it's all good, except for like asbestos and some other things. It's all good except for one property, and so I explore that property. That's on yeah, that, and then it goes from the racetrack to being used in all kinds of different places around Kansas City in the in the immediate area. Um, I, I found that. I've got a text question here. Would, would Dr. Pierce offer an opinion as to why the number of people reading ACG, AIHA, ACGH applied journal on a monthly basis is now in the hundreds versus when they got the paper version, it was more like 10,000. Well, uh, the equivalent of AIHA and the board membership is 10 to 20,000. Well, I, I'm not up there, uh, you know, in, in the office. I think there are people up there that are uh, b better uh, uh, equipped. And, but I will weigh in on the part of journals. Uh, and I've been an editor-in-chief, and I, it's a thoughtful question, and there is something I want to say about that. When you take a look in terms of the way that we disseminate information these days, it's very different. People cherry-pick. They they look at a, a, a edition of, or a month of the journal, and they find one article, and they say, hey, I might be able to use that at work. That's very different than a 1970 or 1980 version. I'll, believe it or not, and you could call us geeks or whatever you want to call us, a lot of people used to take the journal and put it on the nightstand, and they saw as a professional obligation. They, they would go through it. They didn't read all the articles, but they would at least scan the abstract. So the way that people encounter information these days, I think, is a bit different. And the availability of information is also different. Yes. Uh, another another part of my life that's still concerned with education, one of the things that we found, it shocks people to find out, uh, even in medical school, that 30 to 40% of the time, the students aren't using the material from your medical school, the materials that you provided on account of internet and other sources. They are using other schools' Uh, material. So it's very different. And I don't mean to skirt uh, the questioner's uh, inquiry there in terms of uh, uh, the, the journal thing and and print subscriptions, but it's, it's very, um, very different. It's a very different world today. All right, we're going to break for halftime. We'll be back with Dr. J. Thomas Pierce. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site your trusted full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. 
Our association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science. ACGIH.org. AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World. AIHA.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA's Multidisciplinary Membership, collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Tramex Meters, developing modern dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974. TramexMeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers. HealthyIndoors.com. All right, we're back with Dr. Pierce. Let's get a little bit more into the lead issue. Um, I was a little surprised when doing my research for this show that uh, Southeast Kansas and Missouri, which is the correct answer for our trivia question, has three of the five largest lead mines in the United States. Um, let's talk about how successful we have been in, I guess, kind of combining industrial hygiene and occupational medicine to help lower lead in, in kids today. And John, if you could pull up that chart real quick, maybe that would help. Well, if I go back, uh, this is way ahead of the second phase of my own training, but if I go back to my original advisor who had spent years, decades, every day, turned an instrument on and processed children's and adults' blood lead samples. When I entered this field, in general, certainly for adults, lead in blood was regulated at a level somewhere between 25 and 40 micrograms per deciliter. And uh, quite frankly, if it were less than 25, kind of so what? That changed. We said, not good enough. We're going to move the goalposts. Need to be below 10. So we moved the goalposts, particularly for children, but sometimes for adults as well. And we said we needed to be below that. I want to go back to this era. This is uh, my focal era uh, in the late 1970s, early 1980s. What you see here, and we're not done. It's not good enough. But you see drastic change across 1978 uh, to uh, 1980. It became a, a perfect storm. It, it's, uh, people will uh, 
cite the uh, principle in terms of the removal of lead and gas. Yep, that's important. They will cite the example of the removal of lead in uh, interior uh, paint and some other examples. Uh, they, they will cite uh, recra types of cleanups, uh, but a variety of forces came together so that we saw a dramatic reduction. And this is nowhere good enough, but the point is, in terms of the archives and the legacy, what did we do right? Because uh, some of these some of these uh, lessons are not permanently uh, learned. I don't have a lot of contact with uh, Dr. Hannah Atish in Flint, Michigan. She's a pediatrician that basically alerted the public to the story in Flint with drinking water. Uh, that's something that we continue uh, to really uh, struggle with, and and that's something I know you you you've helped work on. At least um, I, I remember in one of the answers to one of the questions we sent you, you were talking about how you've been working with people and trying to get money to help reduce lead and water. I didn't think I was really the right person to do that, but uh, I was also where I didn't think anybody else was going to do it in uh, Missouri and Kansas. So uh, some of my friends and I have become visitors to the state houses and uh, we were successful. Technically, I could throw a softball into Missouri from my house, but I live in Kansas in terms of full disclosure. But we were in the Missouri State House and uh, I, I think several factors. First of all, we had to quell opposition to propose public health improvements in drinking water supplies. We had to quell that. We had to build enthusiasm uh, for expenditures. And there's money available on, on several fronts. There's federal money available. There's research uh, money, uh, in a manner of speaking, in terms of community block grants uh, kind of things. And there's some state money. So I'm going to use average figures here. Michigan was way ahead of us, certainly. But they, they had basically a, a sentinel event out there, the Flint water thing. But we've been over to Jeff City, and we think that we have $30 million. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but we think that we have $30 million that will be used to absolutely improve, whether it's by virtue of better filtered water fountains with the deionizers and so on, uh, water line replacements. Uh, we think that we have $30 million in the mill uh, for that. And uh, the, the take-home message for me with that is absolutely nothing is automatic. Uh, anybody that thinks that this is going to happen on its own, uh, probably not. It, it takes And it takes shoe leather to, to just get over there and talk to them, try to quell that opposition, and then build support. Uh, people like us that are uh, basically advocates for different aspects of uh, public health, uh, we have to make our voices heard in uh, some uh, manner. And quite frankly, uh, the issue of having a degree or being perceived as well-educated can also uh, mean a perception of somewhat irrelevant to the very real process of running government. And so uh, the learning curve was very steep for me in state houses, very steep. And what's, but what's the key? You've got to get in there and just, and talk to these people and let them realize that you're just like them. 
I think I think that's a large part of it. I use my book too. I use Million Dollar Speedway. One of the things that I found that resonated most with people is, hey, we've been we've been at this for quite a while now. And uh, a couple of other things that I learned, uh, regardless of people's opinions of legislators and politicians, they are readers. I was quite surprised by that. Many of them want to write their own uh, materials as well. And if you walk in and say, hey, I got a story here. It's just a story. It's not a scientific book, but it's a story about some of these challenges that we have faced in inner city neighborhoods and beyond in Kansas City and in St. Louis and in St. Joseph, Missouri, and so on. Would that be something you might be interested in? The answer was invariably yes. And and the million dollar speedway, how what's the reaction been to the million dollar speedway? I I think one thing that you learn as a storyteller is you think, okay, I spent all this time to put this stuff together and I think you might enjoy it. But basically what you get most of the time is somebody says, let me tell you a story about what happened to my granddad or (laughs) what we were doing out on the farm or something. And so it's very much a a two-way kind of uh, exchange in terms of, well, you got these thoughts and you put them on a piece of paper. Well, we And the other person says, well, I got these thoughts too. And let me tell you what happened to us. You know, I I really enjoyed, I, I, I read through again. I had read it when you sent it out earlier uh, a couple of years ago or a year ago anyway. And then I, I reread it before we started this interview. And I, I had forgotten about the people that were living next to the landfill. Can you kind of tell people a little bit about the issues they were dealing with? I very much wanted to have at least one yard that would show perhaps a concerned mother, if not parent, who became engaged in a struggle the same way that parents uh, are members of the PTA, but not forever. Uh, They probably don't spend a lot of time with PTA when their children are in the army or college or whatever they went off to do, but parents and others in communities become engaged. And uh, we were doing some local work in Kansas city about the time that I put those stories together in terms of community health advocates. And I've been a part of, of that. Somebody that's basically uh, been a resident on a given block lives next to a, a landfill. The major story that comes out of that is the issue of the mule that was buried in the landfill and the hydrogen sulfide emissions that result from the decomposition of the mule. And then the fact, hey, some of these kids start to get sick. And then I turn I turn the page in terms of my own life as well to say, okay, what's it like when you're a, a mom with a job and you got to be at the job, but they call you from the school and kids got to come home from the school. You know, they can't get it under control with the inhaler down at the school. Come pick your kid up. And so mom goes to the school and then this problem reoccurs. And uh, one of the one of the things I wanted to explain for certain individuals, moving is an option for other individuals. Moving isn't an option at all. So the conditions themselves have to improve. So that that was really the issue of living uh, next to the landfill. Also did some things with respect to mid 20th century. A lot of people, whether it's railroad or uh, smokestack industries, a lot of people wanted to live 
in very industrial neighborhoods. They could they could walk to work, and uh, they felt like they were. I mean, look at your version of Pittsburgh up there. They felt like they were integral to the operation of whatever it was, steel mill or something else. You know, uh, kind of when you talk about trains, and there's a lot of discussion of trains and the and the people who are in charge of uh, killing the weeds along the tracks to make sure that the you know we don't get brush growing up under tracks, which would then make the track kind of unstable and maybe have train accidents. I didn't realize how big of a an issue that was until I, I read through the book, but that also reminds me of the recent uh, issue with the train derailment in Ohio. Have you been watching that at all? And, and oh, do you sure. have any commentary on it? East Palestine. Yep. Uh, I'm so, I have somewhat uh, split loyalties. I have friends that are in health and safety with railroads. I think well of them. I know they would try uh, to do the right thing. They're, they're well-trained. And they're ethical. On the other hand, uh, again, in terms of perfect storms, things have not been have not been going uh, very well. Uh, like some other industries, railroading itself has changed considerably. So you hear the term precision scheduled railroading. So this has been around longer. It originated in Canada, and there's a lot of discussion right now in terms of train links. Also the uh, availability of what are called, it has a more technical term, I don't recall it right now, it's, a, it's otherwise called a hot box sensor, uh, the frequency with which that signal is detected, and then uh, the course of action uh, that's taken uh, uh, beyond that. So there, there are a variety. The issue of train scheduling and movement has been a major driving force for IT and computer for at least 45 years that I know of. And even though there's some great computers in terms of train movements, which is still a very linear kind of relationship, there's still challenges to doing that safely. Yeah, I was I don't know if you have any insight on this or not, but I was kind of surprised they let they let that burn the way they did. Um any thoughts on that? I don't know that they had a lot that they had a lot of uh, uh, choice in terms of the releases themselves. If there had been alternatives in terms of the release, I think that uh, they would have rather done anything else, as you say, the control burn and also the release, because that was very bad news, not only for the community of East Palestine, but also uh, perhaps one or two or maybe even two or three surrounding uh, counties. I don't know that they had a lot of degrees of freedom other than to do it uh, that way. Yeah, that was... We tend, we tend not, not... I didn't hear anyone. I'm not trying to be cute with this, but none of us are willing to give up uh, the vinyl chloride monomer that is used to make vinyl chloride and other products. Whatever we get, our computers and our automobiles and our motor scooters and our boats and stuff... We all like that stuff. And, uh, the, you know, the class one railroads are the ones that move it. I guess it's always a balancing act. You know, you're trying to figure out what are the benefits of these products and what are the downside of these products. And that's what occupational environmental health and safety is all about, I guess. True. And uh, a lot of us thought that Norfolk, Norfolk Southern in particular, when you hear the the big class one railroads, most people think of Union Pacific or uh, BNSF. 
Uh, and, and now the, the merger, we had our own railroad here, Kansas City Southern, which is just uh, merged, you know, Canadian uh, Pacific there. But Norfolk Southern is, is another uh, railroad. And they I don't know how you put this. They just have not had very good fortune uh, recently uh, for a variety of reasons. It's It's been tough. So we're... Where are we going from here? You got the million dollar speedway out. And by the way, can you tell people where they can pick up a copy of the million dollar speedway? The million dollar speedway, most people just read it online. You could go, I use issue I double They just look at it. If you want a paper copy, it won't cost them anything. They could just email me, Tom PKS at Mac.com, and I'll send them one. Uh, these books right now are still in kind of an iterative uh, publication uh, state. And then the audio version I do on, I don't know why I don't use YouTube like everybody else. I chose Vimeo and I've been using that for a while. And so the audio book is available there. All right. We'll put that information in the blog and maybe John can, can put it up in the chat here. All right. Next one is the 100 foot drop. Tell us a little bit about why you wrote the 100-foot drop and what it's about. Well, I, I tried this, uh, the narrative storytelling with Million Dollar Speedway, uh, obviously, but there were some other things that I wanted to do. And one of the things that I wanted to do, which I think is important, is I wanted to have as a protagonist a, a female. And I, so I chose a World War II WASP uh, pilot kind of from a somewhat unusual family or families in construction down in uh, uh, the Mid-South uh, region. But she has a bent for flying. She, she goes off to the war. Uh, during World War II, uh, the females uh, were ferry pilots. They flew combat aircraft, but they did not uh, generally, there's one slight exception, but they generally did not fly com- uh, fly aircraft, uh, combat aircraft uh, in uh, uh, combatant. Uh, sense they ferried them across the United States, which is still these are unproven airplanes. Uh, they are very, very recently manufactured and very sketchily tested. Um, nothing like what goes on these days. But I wanted to follow her life. I particularly wanted to look uh, later on. She begins to run her company's uh, her uh, family's company, which is devoted to concrete aggregates. Uh, minerals. And I wanted to illustrate how she uses some of the things that she's learned in aviation and also how she encounters the environmental realm. She sees herself in terms of her family's uh, legacy. She uh, sees herself not only as a successful businesswoman, but she also sees herself as a preserver of the environment in terms of the Mid-South region. In particularly, uh, she wants to do some clever kinds of things in terms of uh, incorporating hazardous materials into concrete uh, so that uh, basically uh, it's either permanently entombed or consumed in another sense. She wants to do that. So like many of us, she begins to bump her nose against the regulatory agency. She (laughs) finds out uh, how you have to do the testing. She doesn't ever become an expert on EPA method five for particulates, but she has to sponsor the test. And uh, she begins begins to interact with a panel of individuals. Some of them are regulators. Uh, others are, are sort of in-house panel of consultants and people over at the local university that agree to help her do uh, 
that kind of thing. And then along the way, uh, she and they began to cooperate on some other problems. So got back. This is a little bit of a strange twist, but they say in terms of the uh, ascending phase of introducing conflict in, in writing, uh, they ask her to help her with something. And uh, they're somewhat confused. They've been asked to weigh in on some uh, unusual cases of a neuropathy, kind of a neuropathic condition that that isn't very easily explained. It appears to involve some uh, air, aircraft uh, workers and so on. And so she begins to apply her World War II uh, aviation background experience and some of her associates, some of her female associates, she's still in touch. And that's very much true for the WASP pilots. Over a period of decades, they stay in touch. They go off. The program is precipitously ended in the uh, December of uh, 44, but uh, she gets back in touch with them and, and she begins to fly a little bit again. And some of the consultants that uh, she has used to help her, she takes them up in a Stearman uh, biplane and they fly around and see what in the Dickens is going on here in terms of some of these other people that are being affected with a neuropathy. And of course, it has an origin as it, you might expect to have to be a solvent. Okay. So I wanted to chase that aspect of a tale around. I also wanted to take a big look at TVA. Tennessee Valley Authority is a fascinating organization uh, then and and now, and also uh, its uh, position for a long period of time in terms of fertilizer development. That story has hardly been told. It's very important, not only the Mid-South, but the entire United States. And to this day, the National Fertilizer Development Center of the TVA no longer exists, but the International Fertilizer Development Center does. And when you look at crop yields around the world, those are the people that really change the things in terms of the number of bushels that you got per acre. Any any farmer will tell you that. Feeding the world. And I, you know, when we were talking, I got the impression that, you know, we're, the, the title of the show was connecting with people about OEH and S. And I think one of the things that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that kind of got you involved in using the storytelling is things like on television and then the movies. You know, you got CSI today. Whoever thought that, you know, crime scene investigation will become so popular. Could you comment about on how the movies and the theater and then book writing, et cetera, and how you want, look at using that to connect with the regular people about what happens in OEHS and hopefully inspire them to become part of the uh, industry over time. Well, I took these two four-letter abbreviations. One you just mentioned, Joe, the OEHS, and the other one I looked at was STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering. I usually change the last word to medical because that suits me, but it's really math, mathematics and maybe some other things uh, thrown in there. So if you look, most of the work that we do, not all of us are employees of the government, but a fair amount of what we do is reactive in terms of governmental uh, regulatory positions of one sort or another. So to get to the um, crux of what you asked about, if you look at federal kinds of employees in scripts that are used in Hollywood, uh, film, cinema, there are four basic uh, professions that are highlighted, and they are NASA, uh, that piques interest, law enforcement uh, piques uh, interest, the spy thing, uh, international uh, intrigue, 
uh, picks, uh, peaks of uh, uh, interest. And then the fourth uh, vacillates a little bit, but usually r runs along the lines of some type of scientific laboratory kind of thing. So it may very well be in terms of STEM and the OEHS thing that we don't necessarily see our heroes as somebody uh, at EPA, uh, for instance. Uh, that That isn't uh, frequently uh, included. But the film is broadened, so the uh, poster's up here for Dark Waters, which is somewhat of a courtroom uh, drama uh, in, in which uh, the uh, principal character here, the actor Mark uh, Ruffalo, plays an environmental attorney. And the environmental attorney has really uh, opened up uh, a whole pattern of uh, contamination against uh, very contemporary kind of chemicals, kind of perfluorinated uh, kinds of, again, uh, solvent-related kind of stuff. And so one of the things that I wanted to do is to take some of the unsung people that are not only in regulatory agencies, but other people, just ordinary people like us that are out here encountering regulatory opinions and so on, and give a glimpse into what it's like to work towards a solution. Not just confrontation, uh, not conflict so much, but resolution to some problems. So in both Million Dollar Speedway and 100-foot uh, drop. Against better author's advice, I have some sequences in which uh, my people are basically encountering regulators, encountering a variety of opinions and beliefs, and then they are attempting to negotiate a solution. John, let's go to the roundup. All right, the roundup brought to us by our newest sponsors, Tramex and the Environmental Information Association. All right, Dr. Pierce, I, I want to kind of wrap this up with a couple quick questions. You know, our interview is not so much about books, but prospects for occupational environmental health and safety research and bringing new people in. I see what you're doing. What can other people who aren't necessarily writers do to help, you know, get people more comfortable with that OEHS profession? I think probably two, maybe three things. First of all, start archiving. Don't throw so many things away. If you have the photographs, if you have uh, old meeting notes and so on, try to organize it a little bit. Also, when you look at modern people, modern people uh, use a phone a lot, and they, they use it to capture uh, short clips of one sort or another. I think those two things... Plus, uh, thinking, you know, along the lines of uh, what kind of impact you'd, you'd like to have. I think those kinds of things are helpful. And I, I remember talking a little bit about, you know, putting these books in libraries and hoping that, uh, you know, that'll get young people inspired to look at this, you know, a little differently. It's a story. It's not, it's fiction, but it's based on real life. Um, maybe talk about that for a second. Well, I'll be brief, but uh, we, we've sent these a lot of places, and we've learned about a lot of places we didn't know existed. Uh, there's an Alan Arkin, the famous actor. There's a uh, 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 Center for uh, Science, uh, Alan Alda, uh, Center for Science uh, Communication. So we've explored that. 
we started to take a look uh, well outside of OEHS, who's interested in OEHS, even if they don't have a professional affiliation at all, who really favors our efforts? And so uh, we found a lot of librarians are smart people, certainly, and we found some that have an interest. Uh, I was really surprised by that. You know, um, before we go, we've talked a lot about the past. I want to kind of put on the, uh, you know, the future lenses and kind of give us an idea. What do you think are some of the up and coming concerns with respect to the OEHS arena? We have to do more in terms of research funding. And I think there's a manner and, uh, you know, I'll probably have a conversation about this some other time, but there's a matter of learning how we could be most relevant in terms of uh, impending issues and also patterns of collaboration. We're a bit different in that we identify ourselves as we do within our profession many times as opposed to really explaining what it is that we do. We say what we're prepared to do and how we've trained to do that. Uh, without really doing, I think, sometimes the best job that we could in terms of understanding what other people are funded to do. And we have to begin to uh, follow some patterns of funding as opposed to suggesting studies that, quite frankly, I don't think the agencies are going to buy off on that right now. And, uh, John, we had a slide on on the sources of funding, and it was a little surprising to see what they are. I wonder if uh, you could comment on this slide, Dr. Pierce, if John can find it. It was the one that had the NIOSH on it and the other funding source. There you go. This happens to be for hydrogen sulfide. And uh, so uh, stock and trade, uh, people like me and OEHS, we, we've grown up to think, well, you go to NIOSH, ask them for some money, at least find out what they're doing. They may already be doing that work. But when you go down this list here, you see, and this happens to be hydrogen sulfide. Here's National Heart and Lung Institute. Um, uh, General Medical Sciences, uh, NINDS has to do with uh, stroke. NIEHS, how many times do we forget they even exist? And they're a big funder in terms of projects and certainly the National Cancer Institute and beyond. It may very well be too. Most of the time in the past, we've seen our professors as being the principal investigator. I think we have to do a better job in terms of learning when we're going to be either a co-investigator, possibly a consultant uh, on, a, on, a, on a project, or uh, provide a necessary editorial or scientific service. Before we go, we always like to give you the last word. Is there anything we missed or anything you'd like to add? Now, I really appreciate you having me on today. It's uh, been a lot of fun, and I hope the viewers enjoyed it, too. Well, I enjoyed getting a, a chance to know you a little better and uh, read through your works, and I uh, appreciate all you do for the industry and uh, for people in general. So this well, is Radio Joe saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. J. Thomas Pierce. I also want to uh, thank my co-host, the Z-Man, even though he's not here. He's, he'll be back next Friday. Our engineer, John, you got to have faith at the controls. Our wonderful group of sponsors, and most importantly, you, our audience, will be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. <laughs>